Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5 with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast. We have Kate Scarlotta, who is a gut health and nutrition expert with 30 years of experience, a registered dietitian, and a New York Times bestselling author. She specializes in food intolerance and digestive health conditions like IBS, celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. On today's episode, Kate joins me to talk about managing IBS and stress overload, the gut-brain access, IBS mimickers, and when to re-examine your gut symptoms with your doctor. What do you do when you feel like you've tried everything to manage IBS and you're still experiencing symptoms? We also discuss how the more stressful the diet is to apply to your life, especially a lot of these different gut diet protocols, the more counterproductive it will be in managing your GI symptoms. One quick reminder for everyone before we get started today, in case you did not catch the update in our January 31st episode, which is all about dry January, we are transitioning to have the last episode of every month be exclusively over on Patreon. So next week, there will be no new episode on the public feed, but there will be the fourth episode of the month for this month, as well as two bonus other episodes over on Patreon for February as well. If you're interested in learning more about why we are making this change and what kind of went into it and everything like that, I will link it in the show notes, but there was a discussion that we had during our dry January episode, and I will also link the post on Patreon where we talked about the changes. So we're looking forward to seeing all of you over there. And without any further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. Today we have Kate Scarlotta, who is a GI dietitian specialist, and as you all know, I love to talk GI, so I'm really excited to get into everything with you today, Kate. So thank you so much for coming on. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Dana. Yeah, of course. So I wanted to dive right in today um, because I get a lot of clients, I'm sure you do as well, and a lot of people who listen to this podcast, I'm sure can identify with the scenario that Somebody comes to you and they feel like they've tried everything. You know, they have IBS or IBS-type symptoms, whether or not they have a diagnosis. They've ruled out Crohn's colitis, celiac, all these different things, and they feel like they've tried the magnesium, the fiber, the kiwis, their nutrition's in check. They've tried maybe low FODMAP. You know, they're well hydrated and they've done similar things, but they're still experiencing symptoms. So if you have that scenario and someone's coming to you, Where are you starting to look next and what other boxes are we looking to check? Yep, absolutely. Well, when people come in with IBS symptoms, it's a very heterogeneous disorder. So I really want to identify what are their most problematic symptoms. And so I have them fill out a digestive health and history form. And we're really identifying if they're experiencing bloating, for instance, what would they describe it? Zero, very little or 10, quite terrible. If they're experiencing diarrhea, is it zero? Is it 10? Fecal incontinence, zero, 10, et cetera. 
and kind of run through the gamut of uh, different symptoms that are common to IBS, and then really then drill down, well, what do I want to target either from nutritional, um, you know, interventions, uh, psycho, you know, refer for psycho- psychological or behavioral interventions, or work with supplements or other uh, modalities that can really kind of work on that particular symptom. Um, so it really is, just to give you an example, very common in my practice is constipation. And they've tried the two green kiwi fruits and and they've tried, you know, maybe a squatty potty toileting stool. You know, those are two of my two great, you know, I tried and chewed recommendations. It might be that they need a full evaluation to really understand the scope of their constipation. You know, is it a slow transit constipation that might benefit from, you know, one modality? Or is it that they have something called dyspnergic defecation where they're really, their body is working against its opposite day is what I call it. You know, the nerves and the muscles are really like closing and becoming tighter and don't allow for an easy bowel movement. And that's benefited from biofeedback, physical therapy. So there's modalities for that. Fiber supplement, eh -eh, not going to help that condition. So we really need to identify what it is we're looking at and then go after that symptom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like we're becoming a detective of our own symptoms, which when I find that a lot of clients of mine have become so much of a detective over the years that it feels Mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, I've checked every box and everything. You know, I'm just so lost because I feel like there are so many things that I've been told to do over the years and I've tried all of them, including all the food restriction and all the supplements and everything like that. And it's still not working. And I would, before we go into the stress and the gut brain connection, because I love to talk about this topic and I know you do too. Um, I was wondering if we could talk about mushers and pushers, because I remember when you talked about this in a course that I took and I loved this description and analogy. So could you talk about that a little bit more? Absolutely. So in relationship to, you know, what you might manage constipation, there are certain medications and even components in food that will change the consistency of stool. And many of them bring water into the stool. And so we call those mushers. And I'm, I, I recommend mushers often when patients come in and describe that their stool is like deer-like pellets, like very hard, small, difficult to pass stools. That's a drying effect that happens in the colon when things aren't pushed out. Our colon's really good at extracting water from stool. And if it stays in there too long, you're going to get some deer pellets. So to add some fluid to that, um, mushers are a great option. And so magnesium oxide, for instance, is an osmotic form. It's a poorly absorbed magnesium. And that adds, because it's poorly absorbed, it drags some water into the colon. That's an example of a musher. Um, Another musher would be sorbitol, which is found in prunes. So why prune juice is a common remedy for people. Um, And then kiwi fruit actually is a musher too. And the reason being it has a very unique fiber that really just holds on to fluid. And so it softens um, stool. Um, And so that's just another example of a musher. Some people have normal snake-like stools. Their consistency is perfect. Um, but they're just not eliminating. They need a little help. I call it like the lazy intestine. And that's where a pusher might be more, you know, helpful. An example of an over-the-counter pusher is Senna. 
Um, and so that can really help sort of with the motility. And then there's a variety of different medications that the that um, can also kind of help with the pushing as well. Um, but Sen is kind of my go-to. Um, and so again, identifying the stool consistency in constipation or incomplete emptying can really help whether a musher or a pusher could could work. Mm-hmm. Love that. And I love that analogy too. And I think it's it's a lot easier for people to remember because, you know, there's so many different kinds of stimulant laxative versus non-stimulant laxative. And then there's over-the-counter and then there's medication and then there's different foods and different nutrients. And people are like, I don't even know. You kind of throw up your hands up because yeah. there's so many different things going on there. Um, but looking beyond supplements and even food, you mentioned before gut-directed hypnotherapy and you know, is something that we have talked about before in different courses and something that you mm-hmm. commonly recommend or refer out for. I want to talk a little bit more about the gut-brain connection and the nervous system and its impact on whether it's IBS or not gut symptoms, because I think this is something that has been finally coming up in the last couple of years. Um, But I think it's also really helpful to talk about this in the context of people who are coming from either working with functional medicine or places where they've received these protocols where it's very all or nothing and they feel like they need to eliminate all the things in order to even start to manage their symptoms or it's their fault. And when we bring the conversation back to that gut-brain connection, and stress and the impact that stress and a dysregulated nervous system can have on the IBS and the gut in general, I think it can be, well, maybe on the one hand, a little bit stressful because it's like, uh, something else for me to think about, but also very freeing because it's like, well, I don't have to manage everything through food. And for some people, that's not going to make a big difference depending on what your root cause is as well. So can you talk about what you mean by stress overload and its impact on IBS? Yes. Uh, you know, I'm like, that was a whole lot you just talked about. And I'm yes. thinking like, <laughs> oh, there's just so much to talk about right there. But um, yeah, so, well, a couple things. If we talk about the IBS, Scott, um, I want to just sort of identify that in people with IBS, the brain and gut connection is dysregulated. And it, I often say that it's like, you're using like, you know, a megaphone. The brain is like, there is a gas bubble in the lower colon. And it's screaming that. And where someone else might feel like a slight little glimmer of gas and they pass it. Someone with IBS, it's like alarming feeling, you know? So in IBS, that gut and brain is just so highly interactive. Um, But when someone has stress overload, just in general. It, and it depends on some of the stressors because sometimes when we feel stressed, we also fear, feel fear or sometimes we feel stressed and we feel angry. There's different moods and these different moods can affect motility. So anger can really keep the motility in the upper gut really sluggish. And fear, like think of like you're scared to get on to do your lines in a play. What happens to a lot of people? They fly to the bathroom with diarrhea. So even different moods can affect motility of the gut. So, and if you're in this chronic stress overload, it's just going to really get your gut in a bunch um, because the gut and brain are, you know, as I mentioned, they're highly linked in all of us. Never mind, they're a little bit more like screaming at each other in IBS. But for all of us, 
We all feel butterflies in our stomach if we're nervous. That's a perfect example of the gut and brain talking to each other. Um, or sometimes flying to the bathroom when we're fearful of something or someone scares us. Um, but being in that constant drive of stress, and that certainly can happen when you're on the Dr. Google searching, feeling like you are totally in charge of everything that ha every gas bubble you experience is your fault, every bite you take matters. You know, some of this is, you know, culture, what we're seeing on TikTok, but we are, we're driven with a lot of these messages that really just constantly put us into this situation that one is not necessary and two contributes to that stress overload. You know, we all have stressors, but adding chronic health conditions and then Google searching and, you know, throwing paint at the wall, trying to get yourself better is certainly going to not help. Especially if you're someone who's had a chronic health condition or chronic symptoms for a long time and you've maybe kind of outsourced instead of just going to Google, <laughs> you've gone to maybe multiple practitioners and either they're all telling you different things or they're all telling you like gluten is the devil and you must eliminate it. That yeah. is a lot of food fear mongering that if you mm -hmm. have whether or not you have a history of disordered eating or eating disorder that's going to really sink its way into your brain and every single time you even think about eating that food that stressful gut brain connection is like oh oh god and that fear response like you mentioned or it can lead into a lot of other emotions as well and it's a really difficult place to be because then we find ourselves in this situation as the practitioners of like okay well how do we work on removing the fear around the food, especially if the fear or whatever else is driving a symptom presentation around certain foods, or maybe you're the kind of person where you're like, I just feel crappy all the time. And maybe it's every food. Maybe it's no food. I don't really know. But now I'm down to like 10 things that I can eat. And I still feel awful all the time. And now I don't know what to do. Exactly. And that's, you know, usually when those clients or patients come to my office, I'll say, how's that working for you? Mm. You know, it's kind of a tough conversation, but it's like, okay, you're eating 10 foods and you're still sitting in front of my, you know, desk here. Um, and I think, you know, if something's not working, you really need to reassess why the heck you're still doing it. Um, you know, I find it with people on the low FODMAP diet, um, which, you know, I think it's important to mention works for 50 to 80% of people. That means 50% potentially, it's not going to work. So it's important to know it's not an all, you know, it's the best we have right now in modifying fermentable carbohydrates to whatever degree is necessary it may work for some people. But for a large amount of those people, you know, it doesn't work. And there's a number of people still out there following the low FODMAP lists. And for it's like, years again, at a time. This, if this is not working for you, what's your plan B? And typically when I see a client, we talk about that because I'm not a plan A person. I'm a plan A, B, C, and D person. So like, let's start here and let's see where we go. And then we might engage plan B. Um, but yeah, if something's not working for you, then not a good idea. And then to your point about multiple providers, I think the most important thing is to have trust and respect for your provider. And then build the team around that provider because there's nothing worse as a patient that's struggling to get 14 different opinions about what they should be doing. Because you can't be your own provider and your own patient. 
You need to be the patient who's educated by providers you trust. Um, and so once you build that trust network, you are going to feel um, empowered and you go, they help lead you. You don't have to say yes to every treatment modality, but you're being led in a in a very respectful way. And that takes so much pressure off the patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And going back to the food for a minute, I always say to people, if food is not the origin of the problem, then we can't look to food exclusively for the solution, right? Because unless it's something like celiac disease or a food allergy or very severe genetic lactose intolerance or something, if you are having a lot of different reactions to foods, there's a reason for that. And just removing those foods is not going to remove the reason, right? It may help in the short term with management of symptoms, i.e. FODMAP or low FODMAP or something. But then it's also figuring out, okay, well, how did we get here in the first place? And what are the things that are contributing to my body's current inability to break down these foods in a way that doesn't lead to all of the symptoms that you hear about on a Pepto-Bismol commercial, basically, exactly. which is a really hard place to be because there are millions of people out there who struggle with IBS or IBS-type symptoms every day. And it's a really uncomfortable place to be. But um one of the things that I noticed you said on your Instagram, which I highly, highly agree with and is something we talk about frequently on this podcast, is the more stressful that the diet you're choosing to help manage your symptoms is to apply in your life. So the more stress that that puts on you, the more counterproductive it will be in managing those GI symptoms. So could you go into that a little bit more? Absolutely. Because again, the brain and the gut are highly linked, right? So they're going to be talking to each other. And if your brain is feeling constant stress on every single morsel you bite, uh, you're going to probably, what we call the nocebo effect, experience symptoms. So placebo is when we take a pill, we we think it's helping. It could be a sugar pill. And it's like, oh, this is I symptom-free, right? Nocebo is the opposite of that. And it's like you eat something um, that should be completely, you know, not problematic, but it's problematic. So there's no reason physiologically, but you in your mind have it so, you know, expected that it's going to cause a symptom. So your mind can actually contribute um, to some of those, you know, those feelings of, you know, GI symptoms, but it's more mind directed. So I think that's important to note. And some people, you know, in IBS, there's a condition called visceral hypersensitivity, and that is just a very sensitive bowel. It's very sensitive to any gas or uh, stool in the in the colon, trapped gas. It's just highly crampy. And sometimes people need medications like, neuro, for instance, neuromodulators to really just dull those sensations. So that every little gas bubble isn't putting them over the edge too. So I think there's, again, there's so many tools and we we talk about this, not to give my book, Mind Your Gut, a plug, but we do talk specifically about every single type of common symptom in IBS and various behavioral therapies, supplements, medications, because patients that experience these symptoms should have a full full toolbox. It should be a toolbox that, you know, this works for them. You know, there are some of my patients that are very particular about certain modalities of therapy. Um, and so we just work outside the toolbox. There's lots of tools. So 
Um, I think that that's really important that patients are, you know, we call patient shared decision making that we say, this is what you have. And these are the tools that we can use. And what I recommend as your provider is this first, but I'd like your thoughts on what you would like to engage in Mm -hmm. and then have a good conversation. So we're in agreement with plan A of B, C, D, and E, and Mm -hmm. J. Well, isn't that interesting, right? Because IBS is such a catch-all diagnosis. And a lot of people, when they leave their provider's office and they're like, cool, I've been diagnosed with IBS. Like, yeah, no kidding. I kind of know I've had these symptoms. But a lot of times it's very discouraging to get that diagnosis because it doesn't actually mean, oh, yes, this is where it's coming from. And this is exactly what we can do about it because there's so many different variations of IBS. And I think that that part can be very overwhelming for people because it's like, oh, my God, there's so many tools. What am I supposed to do? Which is exactly where a trusted provider comes in. Right, right. But then there's this whole other side of the coin, which I know you will talk about in your book because I saw it in the synopsis. But I would love if you could talk a little bit more about IBS mimickers and when to reexamine those symptoms with your doctor. Absolutely. So again, You start with your trusted professional that you feel really has your back and is really looking at this globally. And you've tried, you have IBSD and you've tried different medications. You've, you know, looked at, you know, the Rifaxman, a number of different things that may be in play for IBSD, Um, behavioral therapies, nutritional therapies. You're really just not getting anywhere. Then we start thinking, are we missing something? You don't want to go down the constant rabbit hole of looking for things that are so rare and unusual, you know, um, because that can be stressful and make you worse and question everything. And there's, you know, over-testing is, you know, in my opinion, is, is you will find things. They might not have anything to do with your IBS symptoms, but sometimes overlooking and overutilization of healthcare is not necessarily um, necessary for, for most people with the diagnosis of IBS. That being said, there are different conditions that we see either overlap with IBS or it's not IBS, but the symptoms mimic one another. And so how, how can we tease this out? So some examples with IBSD, which we discuss in our in our book, is bile acid diarrhea. So this is when your your liver is making too much bile, or for some reason it's not being absorbed properly, um, and the bile gets into the colon, drags water in with it. It's an irritant to the colon, causes copious amounts of diarrhea. In that instance, we could do a trial of a bile acid sequestrant, which is a type of medication that sops up that little extra bit of bile, and diarrhea resolves. This is common mimicker in IBS. So up to fifty percent of people with IBS may have this condition. So we're always going to go, what's most common? We're not going to go 0.023% of people might have Lyme disease. You know what I mean, for instance, or, and I'm, that's not the correct uh, <laughs> percentage, but we want to go like methodically. Okay, this kind of makes sense. This is the type of diarrhea. It's you um, Bile acid malabsorption also can present with nocturnal or evening symptoms. So you're waking up with diarrhea. That's not really true of IBS. You should not be waking up in the middle of the night. So that's always like, a oh, maybe it's bile acid malabsorption. They're waking up with urgency. 
So that's a particular um, interesting mimicker. Another one that's sort of a new kid on the block, which is really kind of surprising us because we we had heard of this condition in children more relative um, as a relative diagnosis, but not necessarily in adults. And it's a condition called sucrase isomaltase deficiency. And this is an enzyme that helps your body digest sucrose, which is table sugar, but it's also in fruits like apples, pineapples, you know, a variety of different kinds of fruits. And also pastries and all the yummy things that we love to eat, particularly me. And um, and so this enzyme complex digests sucrose, but also about 60% of starches in our diet. And this recent data that we're looking at in patients that present with irritable bowel syndrome with a diarrhea predominance is we're learning that almost up to one in 10 has a deficiency in this particular enzyme complex. So not in all IBS subtypes, but in the IBSD model, it appears that these patients may actually have a deficiency in this complex. And it may be genetic. That may be the reason. And we think the genetic patients tend to have had symptoms like IBSD forever, like their whole life. Um, and those patients probably have a genetic reason why they have this low enzyme uh, complex being made. There's also what we call acquired sucrase isomaltase deficiency, and that can happen when there's small intestinal inflammation. And there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine can cause that. Celiac disease causes inflammation. Crohn's disease in the small intestine. So that would be then worked up a little bit further. But one in 10 is very high for people with IBSD. So this is sort of a new like growing area of research, very interesting. And we're now seeing this a lot more in adults. Um, so that's an example. Another mimicker would be small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which symptoms present pretty similarly to IBS. Loading is the most common symptom, uh, pain, alteration in bowel habits. And this is when uh, too many bacteria overgrow in the small intestine. And there's a lot of food intolerance with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because the microbes get to the food before it even gets absorbed. Um, so that's another example. A less frequently um, found mimicker, so percentage-wise, it's on the lower end, is called pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. And that's when your pancreas does not make enough hormone uh, digestive enzymes. It's a, it, you know, it's a endocrine or organ. So it has insulin and it also has digestive enzymes, exocrine and uh, endocrine function that pancreas is a very important organ in our body. It's that exocrine part that helps to make the digestive enzymes. And so if you're not making adequate pancreatic digestive enzymes, you're probably malabsorbing a lot. Um, what we see in those patients is diarrhea, but also stools that tend to float and are odorous. Uh, difficult to flush, but again, less likely, but it can it can be a mimicker. So those are just some of the higher level. Celiac disease would be, of course, another one. Um, but we do discuss that because, you know, there are other things that patients might need to look into. Mm -hmm. Especially if you're a patient who's been, you know, and I mentioned this at the start of the episode, but if you've tried a whole bunch of different things, and then if you are working with a trusted provider and you're like, you know, doing a lot of the things that you're saying, we're working on the stress, we're working on the nervous system, all these other things, but it's like something still is not right. And that's when we would look into, you know, testing for a number of these things, which actually I was just talking about 
pancreatic exocrine insufficiency yesterday with a client because we're starting to go down that path, um, which is super, super interesting. I did want to go back a little bit to talking about the gut-brain connection because I love the analogy with the megaphone that you mentioned. Um, And when you were just talking a couple of minutes ago, I just got this visual of like, it's the super megaphone, you know, when you've gone down that route for a very long time. And I was wondering if we could talk about a little bit more about how this happens, right? Why does the megaphone become so loud over time? especially in people who don't have IBS versus people who do have IBS, and maybe some of the reasons why does our megaphone get so loud? Is it things that happen in our adult life? We do know that people with higher adverse childhood experiences scores earlier in life tend to have louder megaphones, let's say, especially with relation to IBS. But could we go into that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, similar. So like children that have um, had sexual abuse or trauma in their childhood have a higher risk of IBS. And so that linkage is, is, is there for their digestive symptoms. What also I see in practice is even if just a, a transient traumatic moment may alter that gut-brain access. Divorce. Uh, being in a, I had one patient's family was in a tornado. And, you know, solid gut, no problem with symptoms, and then develops. So it can be also like a sustained acute event, too, that isn't like just, I got scared at the movies, Mm -hmm. I have IBS and my gut brain is dysregulated, but more like these a little bit more drawn out, uh, you know, a death, divorce, that can, you know, and and likely because it's changing some of the motility issues and that can allow bacteria to grow in different areas and it's a compli- complicated scenario but you know the gut and brain definitely um do get dysregulated with these stressful events and I'm not convinced it has to be something chronic in childhood only um but that we see that you know in adults for these acute you know few months experiences too Yeah, which honestly is so unfair when you think about it because it's like, cool, I already had to deal with the acute situation that I was going through. And now you're telling me my nervous system is like, oh, yeah, actually, we're still going to deal with this stuff, you know, 20, 30 years later or, you know, six months, a year or something later. So when you're working with people like that and we're doing, you know, the different interventions, we're working on the nervous system, maybe they're working with a therapist, whether it's gut-directed hypnotherapy, they're in talk therapy, somatic therapy to work on past traumas and other things like that, but they're still experiencing symptoms on a day-to-day basis. What are some of the, I would say, like low-key toolkit type things that you suggest for people to, you know, kind of day-to-day manage their symptoms if they are having a flare-up? Well, probably my favorite and very tangible, especially as a dietitian, to implement is the diaphragmatic breathing technique. So we know that that really engages the parasympathetic nervous system, which is our relax and digest. And that can help with pain. It can help with urgency and just chill the gut down a little bit. So I think, um, you know, that's something that's very easy to learn. Megan Real has a, a a YouTube on diaphragmatic breathing that I often ha- send my patients to just watch. Um, but those techniques can be really helpful, um, generally speaking. Um, gut-directed hypnosis has durable effects, so it really can is something that patients can tap into. 
They do the six-week, for instance, Nerva has a six-week program. It's a great referable program. And then they can tap back into those learned mechanisms to, again, self-soothe and calm the nervous impulses. Um, What I like with gut-directed hypnosis, I think of like certain things will light up your brain automatically. Like if we're triggered, something scares us. Um, I'm a foodborne illness person, anti don't need that in my life kind of person. And so certain part of my brain is going to light up when I think about something feels threatening, like a food truck, right? Um, but there are, you know, obviously that's a good sign. It's an innate thing to say that might not be the right choice for you. That's always a good thing to honor. But if that's unreasonable and you've got yourself, you know, you can tap you can tap in the gut directed hypnosis kind of dulls those those signals those light those automatic lights that light up in your brain yeah especially for people if let's say they're bouncing back from something like sibo or c diff or you know something very serious like yes. that the food fears are abound and of course they would be right that's something right. that i really like to emphasize and kind of drive home with people is you're not afraid of these foods for no reason. No, it's like that is a survival mechanism. That is a safety tool because when you were acutely in it, things were not going well. And of course, your body doesn't want to go back to that place. So then that's when we work on the how do we create more reassurance around these foods, how to create more safety around these foods, and how do we start with what I usually describe as like the lowest hanging fruit, right? We're not dropping you at the top of Mount Everest of your fear foods and being like, let's start here. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to start right. with things that right. seem a little bit less intimidating. And then we're going to gradually build up your confidence over time as long as we're managing the symptoms to go along with it. But it's a hard mountain to climb for those people with those of us, those people with IBS, celiac, yeah. Crohn's colitis, all the things. <laughs> Absolutely. But I love the gentle approach. It's it's definitely it builds confidence and why dietitians are really in the best place to guide this because we understand we understand food science and we understand what those low hanging fruits are probably going to be for that patient, knowing their medical history and their background. So it really does make a difference because I think a dietitian's lens is really important using the art and science to help identify which foods are going to be most likely tolerated by this individual so that they can build trust in their body. Um, And also, I think it's important that we, the diaphragmatic breathing is really helpful through those food challenges too, because it prepares their body to be in a more relaxed state when they're trying foods. Um, And you go at their pace, which is, you know, important that we honor what feels safe for them, you know, to integrate. But all of that can really help build confidence and help individuals move forward. And it's very rewarding for them and as a practitioner to really just see that that list go from 10 to 20 to 30 to 40. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the other things that can be very helpful is developing a sense of community and also not being alone because these things can feel very isolating, especially something like you know, SIBO or having a C. diff infection or, you know, any of these other things, especially because most people, unlike us, are not like going around talking about bathroom habits or stool or other things like that, unless you have a friend who's very open about that or a friend who's a dietitian, right? So when I was preparing for the interview, 
I love that you have, and I would love if you could talk a little bit more about the I Believe in Your Story initiative, which is trying to you know bring more awareness to IBS and different gut-related conditions because it can really feel very isolating when you're on your own. And it, that can, on its own, make it very hard to find a practitioner that you like, know, and trust with your health. And I love how you say it talks guts or it takes guts to talk about your guts. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about the inspiration behind starting that? Yeah. So, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years, so a long time, and mostly in GI probably for the last, you know, really 25 hardcore. And it is, it's a very embarrassing, stigmatizing condition for many people to live with. And I wanted others to feel less isolated and to really bring their voice to the forefront. Um, and I also, you know, it's like 11 cents per patient is donated by NIH for research funding. And that just really made me sad. It's so minuscule compared to so many other conditions. And women's health issues, which IBS affects more women than men, autoimmune conditions do. So this is a, more of a woman's disease. They're funded so poorly. So again, that was also an impetus. It's like, okay, we need more funding and understanding. So I raised money through the I Believe in Your Story campaign to fund Dr. Pimentel's research and Dr. Che's. Bill Che does a lot of food IBS studies, and Dr. Pimentel really is looking at really understanding the root cause of IBS, particularly when it comes to microbiome alterations. So both really movers and shakers. So we've done that. But yes, one of the primary things was to share, be able to share stories. And, you know, some of the stories were just so compelling. And I really pushed the I Believe in Your Story campaign during IBS Awareness Month in April. And we really gathered the stories and pushed them out. But patients really appreciated hearing from different individuals. In fact, one nurse wrote in and was just like, I should know better. But this is what I did. Like, I'm in healthcare and I know these things, but I went down the rabbit hole. And I think that was really empowering message for other people that are like, I should know better, but I don't know better. And she knew better, but she went down the rabbit hole too. And, you know, just kind of made people feel like, you know, you're not supposed to be perfect here. You didn't cause your IBS. And the reason you're here and have all these feelings around this illness is that it's a challenge. You know, I always like to bring up that, you know, they did a survey study back in 2007 looking at IBS patients and 20 of the survey members, they were willing to give up 25% of their remaining life for a cure or treatment that would, that would minimize or cure their disease. 25% of their remaining life. So, you know, this is no joke. Right. So we have to be really empathetic, sympathetic, compassionate, and really understand our patients' lived experience so that we can then help them move forward. And in the same vein, I really try to get my in my patients to be very as objective as possible in their doctor's appointments and even put numbers on things. Like, you know, tell your doctor from zero to 10 your bloating's a 10 or a 10 plus that you feel, you know, five out of seven days are impacted and you're unable to do the following things. Because if you go in and say, I'm at wit's end, I, I can't handle this anymore. It's not tangible enough for the physician in the 15 minutes that they have to speak with you. So you want to get it as objective and clean as possible so they can go, 
it's the bloating that's the most problematic and you're at a 10 plus, okay, these are the five strategies for bloating. You know, you can't just go in and unleash completely because then you're using up all that valuable time and there's less time for the treatment that you really came to seek. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, I love the whole story behind all of that. Of course, women in general studies are chronically underfunded. And it is crazy that, you know, as one of the number one diagnoses, at least in the US, if not the world, that IBS is also so underfunded. And it's like, come on, <laughs> we need to do a little I bit know. better. So I appreciate all of your efforts there. But I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing all this great, very digestible, for lack of a you know better term or pun, nutrition information and health information about IBS and different things, very actionable tips that people can do and everything like that. And I'm super looking forward to um, your book that's coming out in March. So could you let people know where they can find you, where they can find your book? And you can say a little bit more about your book as well, if you'd like. Sure. So uh, the book is called Mind Your Gut, and it was written by myself as a dietitian and my colleague, Megan Real, who is a psychologist with a GI expertise. And the book really breaks down into behavioral therapies that can work, understanding the gut brain access and how that gut and brain interact. And then what are some just everyday treatments that can help sort of with that dysregulation? Um, I love that part of the book because there was so many good takeaways about managing controllables versus uncontrollables, things that we can all use whether we have IBS or not. So it's just very, very uh, user-friendly, lots of worksheets that you can, you know, Xerox, et cetera. And then I really get into, you know, the least likely, you know, what are some common tri triggers that we see in IBS? What's the most gentle diet approach that you could try if, if you and your practitioner believe that diet? Start here, you know, the easy, more cleaning up your diet as we call it the gentle diet cleanup uh, before you broach into FODMAP reduction. Um, so, we, so we do that. And then we talk about IBS mimickers and then specific um, tools for different symptoms. What do you need for bloating? What's out there for all different facets, et cetera? Um, the book is available on Amazon. It'll be at Target and Walmart. It's due out March 5th. Pre-orders available now, so you can purchase in advance. Um, you can find me a number of places, but I'm very excited that to tell you that we are launching a podcast. Oh, fun! Yes. So it's called The Gut Health Podcast. Very simple. Um, and we are going to have a variety of experts on um, talking about poop, constipation, bloating, um, what gut health means, why we should care, um, and of course, IBS topics, uh, incorporating the behavioral mind-gut connection as well as the nutrition food connection with microbes and mood. And so um, that'll be available, you know, where podcasts, I'm just learning this, this stuff. Um, but also on Instagram, Kate Scarlata, and I'm also co-sharing my uh, Mind Your Gut official, which is with Megan and I. We'll have all sorts of um, posts there on topics that we've included, included in the book specific mostly to IBS. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, friends, it's Dana, and thanks so much for listening to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast today. 
Find us on social media at Wholehearted Eating Pod on Instagram and at wholeheartedeating.com for more information about working with Dana and Christina for one-on-one nutrition counseling. If you love the show, we would love you forever if you'd share an episode with your family and friends or tag us on social media or leave a five-star rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts to help more people find the show. Check out patreon.com slash wholeheartedeating to help support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, bonus episodes with us and our guests, episode discussions, new resources we're creating for Patreon, and so much more. If you have questions for us, feedback on the show, potential topics or guests you'd love to have on, shoot us an email at hello at wholeheartedeating.com and we'll see you next week.